Hello, hello, hello. Good morning. Uh, I am so very thrilled and honored to be here with you today. Wasn't that great, the, the way the worship team led us in worship today? Amen. Amen. Absolutely wonderful. And, um, you know, I do want to thank the pastor for extending to me the invitation to be here. And uh, so this has been a real honor for me. Now, uh, I am a White Sox fan. <laughs> I am. Uh, I grew up on the south side of Chicago. And um, uh, I am retired from pastoral ministry. I'm a full-time professor at Moody Bible Institute. Been teaching there 14 years, and um, but I'm no longer pastoring. I do some interim work, do a lot of itinerant preaching, like I'm doing this morning. And so my wife of and I, my wife of, of 38 years, be 39 years in August 14th. Amen. Can I can I get a, <laughs> some kind of affirmation for that? 30, 30, 39 years and. In, uh, in August, and so we were looking for a church home, place that's biblically sound, Christ-centered, hello, um, with a godly pastor, hello, uh, where people want to put the Word of God into practice, all, those, all that kind of important stuff. And we actually found a church right next to USA Little Field that does all of that. <laughs> I'm serious. You think I'm joking, Progressive Baptist Church. That church over there that's right next to USA Little Field, Oh, it's a great place to be. And so that's just where my wife and I are at. If you're ever in Chicago on a Sunday, you would, and you're, I mean, if you're over there for a Sox game or whatever, and you want to drop by the church, we will, I want to extend to you a welcome uh, to visit us at Progressive Baptist Church right there on the south side of Chicago. Now, one of the things I would like for you to do is uh, pray with me and for me as I preach. I'm 60 years old. I've been preaching ever since I was 19. I've been training preachers uh, for a number of years now, and I am more convinced than ever that what I'm getting ready to do, humanly speaking, is utterly impossible. Uh, to stand up and talk to you in the name of God about ultimate matters, uh, in, in, in the name of Jesus, uh, God, uh, I'm staggered by the fact that God uses broken people like me to talk to uh, broken people like us in his name. And so I desperately need you to pray with me and for me as I preach. I need you to listen carefully, but I need you to pray with me and for me uh, as I preach. Now, one pastor um, said this. One of the best ways to understand other people is to ask them, how do you see your life? You will discover that there are many different answers to that question as there are people. I've been told life is a circus, a minefield, a roller coaster, a puzzle, a symphony, a journey, and a dance. People have said life is a carousel. Sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down, and sometimes you just go round and round. Or life is a 10-speed uh, bicycle with gears we never use. Or life is a game of cards. You have to play the hand uh, that you are dealt. 
Now, a long time ago in an island nation far, far, well, far away, somewhat on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, several centuries ago, a man by the name of William Shakespeare also jumped into this, into this fray and uh, described life uh, through the lips of one of his characters. This is what it says. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Macbeth, Act 5, Scene 2. Boy, what, a, what, a, what an assessment. By and large, in our more lucid moments, we will not consider life in such dire, um, dire, sad, nihilistic terms. But our experience of life shapes the, our image and metaphor of life. And I have no doubt that given the circumstances of some of you today, uh, having come through the waters, the deep waters of difficulty, uh, the furnace of struggle, that your primary metaphor for life at this point is the battle image. Life seems to have unleashed a whole Philistine army that has met you in your own personal valley of Elah. It could be a financial battle. It could be an interpersonal battle with a relative or with a friend or with a, with a boss. It could be a battle with your own self. And someone noted that the most important of life's battles is the one we fight daily in the silent chambers on the front lines of our own soul. I think I would kind of concur with that assessment or your battle of Armageddon may be in a school, or in your home, or in a court room. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, as I let me mention, nobody has talked to me about your personal life. I don't know anything about the ups and downs and battles that you are going through, but it's quite possible in a church of this size that some of you are actually going through a battle in court. What a battle it is! Litigation. Those are the kind of battles that wake you up at 3 o'clock in the morning. Or it could be a battle with a terminal disease. What a battle. Some of you, some of you, your life, frankly, from childhood has been one long series of battles up to this present moment. 
And if you're honest, you don't even feel like there has been a demilitarized zone in your own experience. Welcome to the battle, brothers and sisters in Christ. And you're not the first one to be in the battle. Even though you may be discouraged, even though you may be defeated, even though you might want to throw in a towel and call it quits, you're in a battle. But you know what the real issue is? Since victory and battles in the biblical sense only come from God, since triumph in the biblical sense in life's battles only is granted by God, the big concern that we must have as 21st century Christians trying to navigate the battles of life in our 21st century postmodern world that has lost its way. The big question we must ask ourselves is this, are there grace-based criteria that we can meet in such a way that God will grant us victory in our battles on earth? Are there, are there grace-based uh, criteria that we can meet in such a way that heaven will show up and grant us victory in our battles in life? That's the big question. And I thank God that there's a big answer in our text for today, which is 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now I'll begin reading at verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 17, begin at verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sokoth in Judah. Now when you go back home and read this story again um, in your devotions as a family, uh, notice the, 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 the war imagery, uh, war, the, the, the war language. This is the Spirit of God's way of emphasizing, getting across uh, um, uh, a, a theme in this chapter. This chapter is dripping with battle imagery, battle language. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Succoth in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damin between Succoth and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. Uh, let me say a little bit about that, to, 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 to just the six cubits and a span. That's how, how it literally reads in the Hebrew, six cubits and a span. Six cubits and a seven is six is the number of a man in scripture. Seven is the number of perfection. This guy is six cubits and a span. He falls short of perfection. Irrespective of how menacing he looks, he is just a man. Six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore a bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam and his iron point weighed 600 shekels. 
His shield bearer went ahead of him. The narrator transports you and me immediately over here to the Valley of Elah to the battle. In our imagination, we see the Israelite army on one side and we see the Philistine army on the other. We see the valley in between. This place actually exists, the Valley of Elah. Uh, Mrs. Neely and myself have actually been to Israel and have actually visited the place where this battle actually took place. The stories, the true stories of the scripture are not rooted in fantasy. They are rooted in sober history and geography. And we can feel the tension rising as we are, are, are actually in here in imagination looking at this battle and all of a sudden a champion steps out. Now the word champion literally means a man between two. That is a man between two armies. In the ancient world, some nations settled issues of war between their respective armies by selecting a champion from each side. These two men would step out into a, a, to a, to, to a, a kind of a, an arena of sorts and they would duke it out and the outcome of the war would be determined by whoever won that match and that was a match to the death. And so he stands out He's six and he's tall, fella, six cubits in a span. That is, he's uh, almost 10 feet tall. So he's taller than uh, Shaquille O'Neal by, by three feet almost. Uh, taller than most, taller than virtually every uh, center that we would have playing in the national, uh, in, in the NBA. He's six cubits in a span, has a bronze helmet on his head, his his coat of scale armor weighs 5,000 shekels, that is uh, 125 pounds. His spear shaft was like a weaver's bean, and his iron point weighed uh, 600 shekels, that is 15 pounds plus its iron. The Philistines uh, had uh, the monopoly on iron technology. Israel did not have that technology, meaning that, uh, that Goliath has a, uh, not only does he have a physical advantage, he has a technological advantage. Furthermore, there is a shield bearer that's going in front of him, and it was not a little arm shield, this was a total body shield, and this fella is walking in front of Goliath to protect him. This is the most detailed description of any person that we have in the entire Bible. Why is God giving us this description? He wants us to understand that from the point of view of sight, from the point of view of what we can physically see, from the human point of view, that Goliath is invincible. He's invincible, humanly speaking. Who can make war with him? Now, God had already told his people. God had already told his people how they were res to respond in situations like this. 
told them in Deuteronomy chapter 20. You, don't need, you need not turn there. I'm just going to read it. Deuteronomy chapter 20. God had already told them. A whole chapter devoted to how Israel should conduct themselves when they went to war. When you go to war against your enemies and see horses. Note the emphasis on what people see. This is not faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. When you see horses and chariots in an army greater than yours, listen to what God has the audacity to say when we see horses and chariots in an army greater than yours. Do not be afraid of them. Because the Lord your, because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. Uh, when you are about to go into battle, the priest still come forward. The priest represents God to the people and address the army. He shall say, hear Israel, just not merely hear with the ear, but hear with the intent of obeying. Hear Israel today, you're going into battle against your enemies. Place your name there, hear whatever your name is. Today you're going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Now I need you to look at your neighbor and say with a measure of vigor, do not be faint-hearted or afraid. I said with a measure of vigor. <laughs> Didn't I say that? With, can, can we do that again, please, with a measure of vigor? Amen. Amen. Let the church say amen. 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 Be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not panic, God says, or be terrified by them. You know, as, as an aside, I am amazed at the audacity of heaven. The audacity of God. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. But they're greater. Don't be afraid, God says. God says it. The audacity of God. The Lord your God is the one who goes, who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies. Listen to this. To give you victory. How are the people going to respond? How would you respond to Goliath's challenge? What, what, what would you say? Are they going to say the situation is powered high with difficulty, but by the grace of God, we will rise with the occasion? Notice what verse 11 says. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed, terrified. Saul and all the men of Israel, including Jonathan, including Jonathan, has been, they are paralyzed by fear that's rooted and anchored in unbelief. Don't be so hard on them. This is a part of the human condition. And that may be the condition of some of you today. Paralyzed by fear. Not being able or not coming to terms with the great reality of taking, of taking God at his word. 
listening to the wrong voices. The wrong input is coming into your life. You find yourself paralyzed, can't move. Now, that's the crisis of this story. The narrator leaves us hanging here for a few moments and takes us back over here to um, Bethlehem. Starts talking to us about David's family. His father, Jesse, who is an old man. And um, the, the, uh, Jesse's got eight sons, verse 12. The three oldest boys are down there in the battle with Saul. David's the baby of the family. He's so young, he can't even go to war. He's not even 20 years old because you had to be 20 years old in ancient Israel in even order to, to qualify to go to war. David's a teenager, guys. He's a teenager taking care of sheep. And then the narrator takes us back over here quickly in verse 16, just to say something about what's going on down here. Verse 16, for 40 days the Philistines came forward, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. So this went on for 40 days, at least 40 days transpire in 1 Samuel 17. For 40 days, there was not one person uh, from God's people on the front line who, who volunteered the name of Jesus, the name of God, to face Goliath. So back over here, back over here, Jesse's concerned and understandably so. He's concerned about his boys. And they didn't have uh, uh, email and the 24-hour, 24-7 news work and all of these other means of communication that we have today to ascertain what's going on on the front lines. You send people down there to find out. So he's going to send his baby boy, David, uh, to go down to, to the, go over there to, to the battle and bring word about uh, what's happening with his boys. For he says in verse 19, they are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines, and we are in the know as readers. This is an example of the scripture's dramatic irony. Nobody is in the valley fighting. Just like they're not fighting down there. They've been paralyzed by fear. So the teenage boy makes his way over here. And... Um, he hears Goliath's challenge. He hears Goliath's challenge. Now keep in mind at this point that Saul has offered a lot for the, he's given quite a few incentives to, to encourage uh, one of his men to go out and fight Goliath. In, in actual fact, Saul was the king. He should have done it, but of, of course he's not. He, he's the tallest man in Israel, the most handsome man in Israel. The people's choice, everything in order according to the physical appearance, and he himself doesn't have the courage to take the faith, uh, to take uh, act in faith and to move forward. But he's given these guys incentives. Verse 25, the king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. So we got to quit, uh, 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 get a rich quick scheme. Go out here and fight Goliath, you get rich. 
No one moves. He would also give him his daughter in marriage. You become a member of the royal family. No one moves. Will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. Wow, that's kind of huge. And Americans don't like taxes. We don't like taxes. We don't like that. Well, we, we don't like taxes. Can, can you imagine somebody making you kind of an offer? You get, we'll make you wealthy overnight. Uh, you become a part of the royal family. Uh, there will be no deductions from your paycheck. You won't have to pay property taxes. Uh, you will have health care, wonderful retirement plan, and none of these incentives were enough to get someone to move forward. In fact, in these kinds of battles that are rooted in faith and trust in God, there are no incentives adequate to enable a person. But David, here's what he says. And this is his response to Goliath's challenge. This is the first time that David speaks in the Bible. Verse 26. When David asked the men standing uh, near, uh, when David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? See, David did not look at the man's armor. David did not look at the armor bearer. What David was concerned about was the spiritual condition of this person. He is uncircumcised. That means that he is not in covenant relationship with God. The most vital relationship that a person can have uh, Goliath does not have, and his threat is not merely against Israel, his threat is against God himself. And that leads me to this first observation. God grants us victory when we have the grace-based understanding of the nature of the threat. We have to understand that the nature of the threat, that the insult is not merely against us, the insult is against the Lord. Now, the church today, the Bible-believing church at least, uh, because of our biblically informed understanding of human sexuality, because of our biblical commitment to marriage between one man and one woman. Because of these commitments and because of the articulation of these commitments kindly, the articulation of these uh, uh, convictions with, with compassion to people, the, the, uh, the expression of a biblically-based worldview because of that, for the first time, perhaps in American history, the evangelical church is being threatened. We're not doing very well with that. We have become passive. We have become paralyzed. Standing on the front lines of perhaps the greatest battle in American history unable to move. 
we need to remember something, that the assault against the Bible is not an assault against you and me. It's an assault against God. It's an assault against the Lord. And that's perhaps one of the more fundamental areas and understandings that we've got to get in our heads. And I can say a whole lot more about the various ways that life comes at us with these threats against our marriage, against our families, against our children, against our churches, and they're, they're now actually threats against God. It's not merely about us. So David understands the nature of the threat. Not merely a threat against the nation of Israel. It's much more fundamental, it's much more serious than that. It is a threat against God. It's very serious. Now, in 40 days, Saul hasn't had heard a biblical perspective about this at all, at all. And some of you may be going through stuff, battles, and you haven't heard any biblical perspective about the issue at all. Perhaps. Well, here, here, so they bring, they bring, uh, the, they, they, David talks to some people and word gets back to Saul. And Saul says, y'all bring this guy to me. I want to see this. I want to talk with this fella. Now you can imagine, can you imagine what Saul must have been thinking? This fella probably looks like a warrior. I mean, he looks like Mr. T. Do you know who Mr. T is? Some of y'all, if you know, you know, he looks like he's one of these Mr. T kind of types. Maybe he looks like a Klingon. Uh, maybe he looks like a weightlifter, Arnold Schwarzenegger in better days, you know, maybe he looks like, like him or like, like Captain America after he came out of that thing and he reconfigured him with all of those muscles and so forth and so on. This guy has got warrior just dripping from him. <laughs> you know who do you, do they bring to him? They bring to him the teenage boy. Teenage boy reminds me of the Chronicles of Narnia when they saw Peter and Lucy and they got the little short, the dwarf said, look, you gotta be kidding me. Gotta be kidding me. Probably what Saul thought, you gotta be kidding me. You? There's anything about, you can't go down here and fight this fella. Saul is not impressed at all. You can't win. You can't do it. You know, match for this fella. Notice what David said to Saul in verse 34 in response. But David said to Saul, now I need you to really, really think about this. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock. Lions and bears were not in zoos back then. Although I heard through the grapevine that there's a cub, a bear cub loose over there in Indiana Get everybody all in the dither. Like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We can, we can turn that to a major concern. But a lion or bear came, listen to this, and carried off a sheep from the flock. A sheep. I went after it. Struck it. And rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, 
I seized it by its hair, struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. Now note the great theological inference that David draws. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord, note this, who rescued me, who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me, will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And David goes back over the past and thinks about these victories and recognizes that it wasn't his ability, it wasn't his power, it wasn't its strength, it was the grace and oh, the grace of God that granted him victory in those circumstances. So God grants us victory when we draw strength from the past. When we draw strength from past victories that God has granted to us, divinely granted victories in the past are the springboard which we, for, uh, from which we can receive divinely granted victories in the present as we face life's battles. And I want to tell you something, do not underestimate the power of reflective memory in your walk with God. Some of you here today have already seen God. You've already seen God, hallelujah, thank God. You've already seen and experienced Jesus' power and victory in your past life. Did he not save you, for starters? Did he, did he not change your life? Did, did he not intervene in your life when you didn't see a way out? You've already seen the Lord Jesus Christ work in your life in powerful ways. So you draw, you reflect, you draw on that. And here I am, a 60-year-old man, and the thing that is helping me the most at this point in my life are my reflections on what God has already done in my life. And I literally draw strength from reflection and prayer on my knees. Sometimes it seems like all hell is breaking loose and it's the memory of what God has already done. That gives me strength right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, hallelujah. This is not theory. This is reality. So you know what you need to do, brothers and sisters in Christ? Let me say this to you. Let me say this to you. I'm serious when I say this. You need to journal. You need to journal. You need to go back home. If you don't journal, if you haven't done so already, and go back over your past life and reflect vigorously on the victories that God has already granted to you. Note them, date them, talk about the circumstances. And you remember this, what God has shown you in the light of the past ought to impact how you deal with the darkness in the battle. Never forget what God has said to you in the light. You note that. 
The power of memory. The power of memory. Reflection on the past. Hmm. No doubt Saul is kind of taken back by this young fella, this teenager. Said, okay, I don't even have time to go into all of the details of the story. Says, okay, young man, you go on down here and you fight this fella on our behalf. Use my armor, but that doesn't work for David. David picks up a stick instead, some stones. Uh, and uh, a shepherd's bag. And he goes down there to the battle. Warriors will talk to one another. Warriors will talk to one another, these kind of circumstances. They would talk before they would fight to intimidate the other. Uh, Philistine others, uh, Philistine others, all kind of curses and insults against David. Now it's David's time to talk in verse 45. What would you say, by the way? What would you say? Bring it on. Clint Eastwood, make my day, buddy. Make my, you know, all of that, make my day. See, and you're, and you're hoping your boys are holding you back. You ever seen that? <laughs> I grew up in Chicago. That's what we used to do. That's a whole nother issue. That's a whole nother issue. Notice what David says. David said to the Philistine, verse 45, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole, note this, and the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. His objective is the glory of God. The whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. Now this next line, you need to get this deeply anchored in your heart. Get this deeply anchored in your mind for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give all of you into my hands. The battle is the Lord's. We draw strength from recognizing that the battle is the Lord's. You know what the problem is? Some of us have been fighting for so long that we've actually forgotten that the battle doesn't belong to us in the first place. The battle is God's. It's his battle. And of course, some of you here today may be in battles that you shouldn't be in. You're in a battle of your own making. Battle of your own making. Here's some quick tips on how to get that figured out. Get this, get, get this thing between God's battles and my battles. One, the glory of God. Is it for the glory of God? Is it advancing the kingdom of Christ? Is it, is it edifying the church? Is it for the salvation of the lost? But if it's merely about us because we're upset, we're ticked off, we're mipped, 
we are greatly displeased about the way somebody did something, so forth and so on, and then we step into it and we start manipulating stuff, pulling strings and using our influence and power and all of this stuff here, not as an expression of faith, but as an abuse of influence that God has granted to us. God is not in that battle. He's not in that. Fight, child of God, to a good fight of faith. Well, you know what happens next? David runs on out there, a little sling. Can you see him in your imagination? Got a little sling, little teenage boy. And the stone leaves the sling, and it seems as if time stands still. And then it happens. Up! Hits him in the head. Now keep in mind that these slings, these people who threw these, they, these folks who throw these stones from these slings, the skilled ones could throw the stone at least at 120 miles an hour. Kind of like uh, Serena Williams with that serve. Pep! Oh yeah, she can serve the ball at but more than that, more than 100 miles an hour. And this pep, it hits Goliath in the head. He falls down, he's knocked out. Aren't you glad you didn't pay any money to see this match? <laughs> like one of those boxing matches that just lasts less than a minute. Get into it. And it's all over. People, oh, but it's over. Yeah, that's it. There's only the Spirit of God actually only devotes two verses, at least that part of the story, emphasizing to us this was not even the defeat of Goliath that really, really mattered so much as it was our very attitude in the battle. He knocks him out, doesn't, there's no, he's out for the count, and so he runs over there to him, takes his head off. God grants Israel a great victory that day. So that's it. That's it. That's it, child of God. Overcoming is normative for Christians. You read the revelation of Jesus Christ, it constantly talks about he who, he who was victorious, he who was victorious, he who is victorious, he who is victorious. This is why we name our sons Victor and our daughters Vicky because of this understanding that victory was inherent in walking with God. So we, that, that's it. God grants us victory when we understand the nature of the threat. When we, when we, reckon, when we draw strength from the past and when we recognize that the battle is the Lord's. That's it. So I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to encourage you today. I need you to remember that the Lord Jesus Christ has already won the great decisive battle of history. On the cross, it seems as if all was lost because Jesus died. You see, but he rose again the third day. Resurrection power and great glory. And the devil is trying to call a time out on y'all, but it's too late. God has got the momentum of the cross. In every battle that we fight, we fight from the glory side of the cross, from the resurrection side of the tomb, and there is a great big old scarlet blood drip V hanging over the entire universe saying that victory is yours in Jesus. Victory is yours. Victor, look at your neighbor and say, victory is yours. 
Come on, vigor. Victory is yours. There is no defeat in Jesus. So you battle on, child of God. Battle on. Battle on your knees. Battle with heart, heart tears that drench the pillow at night. Battle in fellowship with others. Battle from God's perspective. Battle on, child of God. Battle on. We're talking about the battle hymn of the Republic of Glory. My eyes have seen the coming of the glory of the Lord, and we battle on in the name of Jesus. Battle on in the name of Jesus. Bow with me, church, as we pray. God, I thank you for every battle. We thank you for every wound. We thank you for every scar. And I want to pray for the battle-hardened, hard-pressed brothers and sisters in Christ and under the sound of my voice today. I pray that you grant them grace, that you grant them strength, oh God. It's difficult walking by faith, God. It's difficult walking by faith, Jesus. We need you to help us. We need you to empower us. We need you to enable us as we fight from the perspective of victory. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.